Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. Well, it's another cold and snowy winter morning, and it's hard to believe that uh, we still have a ways to go. It is just um, gloomy here in the Northeast. What can I say? Uh, I don't know what part of the country or what part of the world you're in, but uh, this is the time of year when I really look forward to getting um, somewhere else. (laughs) I love Massachusetts and I love New England and I love our seasons, but uh, I do sometimes yearn for Florida and you know, some sunshine and some warmer weather because I don't know, it's about 15 degrees right now. It's very cold and very windy and icy and uh, I've just had enough. So um, it is the beginning of March and we are um, trying to turn the corner on our winter days and get a little more sunshine now. But uh Oh, so much to talk about. So last week, we ended our February month of love. And this week in March, we're going to focus on some inclusion topics and some other disability topics. And I am super excited to kick off my month with a, a fantastic interview, just amazing, with Elizabeth Wright. She is an editor of Disability Review Magazine in the UK, and she is also a Paralympic athlete. She has two other magazines that she's more recently founded and is an editor for, and she is frankly an inspiration. And we had quite the conversation. We talked about a number of topics that we just, uh, I couldn't fit everything in, in 45 minutes. I'll be honest with you. I would love to have a two hour conversation with her about some of the most important, hard hitting, impactful topics in the disability community around the world today. And it's just never enough time. Um, so let me just run down some of the things that I wanted to raise with her and barely scratch the surface of. So I asked her about ableism and, you know, what is just in general, hey, what is ableism for for those of us who are just learning about that and what does that mean? So we talked about that a little bit. What does it mean to be a partner to a person with disability. You know, I'm a parent, so sometimes you're a parent, sometimes you're a spouse, sometimes you're a sibling. You're not always the person with the disability. So how do we be a good partner? How do we be a good community member? How do we be a helper? How do we be a support? Um, We talked about this a lot when, when the world exploded last year with, with, uh, George George Floyd and um, although there's always been these issues of racism they finally bubbled up to the surface I don't know if that's even the right way to put it see I struggle with these 
these issues so much. It's important and time to be talking about them and to face our unconscious bias, right? Um, So when it comes to disability, we want to know for those of us who love a person with a disability, we want to know where our place is in all of this and how we fit in and what we can do and, and where we stand. And as a community, what do we do? How do we partner with a person with a disability, with the disability community? As a professional, how do we partner? So, and then there are those of us who are on the outskirts. So I have what's known as a nonverbal learning disability. I'm dyslexic, I have ADHD. And so I am successful, but I struggle all at the same time. So we have our challenges. So how do we include or not include those issues as well? So those are the things that we started to talk about. So we talked about ableism, we talked about partnering, talked about inspiration porn um, and what does that mean what a fascinating conversation I had wow and she was just an incredible interview Um, I loved chatting with her and without heading down that path of inspiration porn I will say that I would love someday to meet in person and have a cocktail or a cup of coffee, pick her brain and find out more about her thoughts of where we go next after this pandemic. Because I think that her leadership is inspirational and I would really enjoy finding out what what she thinks the path is forward from here on out. So I think you should check out Disability Review Magazine and uh, we will have all of her contact information in the show notes. And I think that you should check out her other two uh, magazines as well. And Elizabeth is um, just a breath of fresh air. So thank you so much, Elizabeth. This has been so much fun. And these topics are timely and important for March. Thank you. Here we go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. So hold on to your hats because today we are going to have a rip roaring ride with Elizabeth Wright. And I'm very excited. She's here today from the UK, and we have a time difference, which If you have listened to any of my podcasts, you know, I am not super easy with these time differences. Um, Is it about six hours, Elizabeth? Is that, do I have that right? Or five hours difference from where you are? I think so. I don't know. It's three o'clock in the afternoon here right now. Okay, it's 10 o'clock here. So welcome at three o'clock in the afternoon from the UK. (laughs) Elizabeth, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Annette, so much for having me. So Elizabeth is an amazing person. You know that you have listened to my intro, but um, I'm very excited to talk to her about her activism in the disability community. As we all know, I'm extremely passionate about our disabled folks 
place in the community and about, you know, being able to you know, decide for ourselves what life we want to have. This is not up to top down, you know, people making decisions for us, right? So Elizabeth has started Disability Review Magazine. She is an outstanding speaker for the community. She's an athlete, a Paralympic athlete. She originated, well, you know what? I'm not going to tell her story. Elizabeth, tell us your story. Tell us um, a little bit about your life and how you came to be such an amazing um, person with limb difference who is outspoken in the disability community. Wow, I, I kind of get asked this question a lot in it and I always wonder where do I start? I know, I where do you start, right? Exactly, it's like, I, I feel like I'm- on, on. No, specific. I think for me, it's just sometimes I feel like I've lived about 10,000 lifetimes in, yeah. in like the, the, the 40 years of this one. And, um, but certainly for me, I mean, I, I, obviously I could go back to the very start and, um, and say, you know, obviously I was born. I was born in Sydney, Australia. I'm sure your listeners can hear the, the Aussie accent. Even though I live in the UK, I definitely have an Australian accent yeah. still. Um, and uh, I was born with with limb difference. So my parents, they um, were older parents and um, they were actually told when, when um, my mum was pregnant with me um, that, you know, mum was a, a geriatric mother at the age of 36. And I just, I just, I love that term, don't, don't you? It's like geriatric mother. Um, and that they should maybe consider um, aborting the pregnancy, which um, they'd never been, with, with my brother and sister, who were quite a bit older than me, they'd never been told this before. There'd never been any issues. And, and I think at that point they thought, okay, there's something up. But the doctors never actually told them that I was going to be born with a disability. And so when I was born, um, because they didn't want my mum to freak out, they actually sedated her for four days oh, after I was born. And my poor dad was the one who got told the news that I'd been born limb different. And he was the one who had to like tell the family. And it was just all, I, I can't even, I mean, lucky for me, I was just this teeny tiny baby that had just been born and I had no idea what was going on. On. but my poor parents I really feel for them the situation that they found themselves in but this was in 1979 and you know it was still very much that that time where disability was kind of hidden it wasn't really talked about it was still really problematic and um, you know case in point that when my parents brought me home they basically like our neighbor elderly neighbor basically asked them when were they putting me into a home so this was kind of the attitude that they were kind of you know in, in society wide that they were bringing me into but I, I really think my parents became disability activists from that moment and they really showed me the way so um, yeah. you know case in point they fought to get me into a mainstream school when I, when I got to, to school age and um, and they really encouraged me and um, really supported me in being as independent as possible so yeah so I kind of you know I can see where my my drive for activism has really come from because yes. I really had those role model amazing role models in my mum and dad that were showing me that I don't have to take the barriers that I'm going to face I don't have to accept them I don't have to um, take no from people necessarily about what I can or can't do and and I think this certainly rolled into the fact of when I was um 
13, I decided I wanted to swim at the Paralympic Games and I started training and, um, and I swam at the 1996 Atlanta Paralympic Games and the Sydney 2000 Games and absolutely loved that. And then in my 20s, I went to uh, university and I studied fine art um, and really focused in on the visual representation of disabled women, because at this point I was really interested in my physicality, you might say, like the way that my body existed in the world. And I wanted to understand how I saw my body and how other people saw my body. Um, because up until that point, you know, I definitely internalized a lot of ableism and I used to try and hide my limb difference from people. And I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't see why I had to have so much shame around what my body looked like or how I actually used my body to engage with the world. So that was kind of my 20s. And all of this was leading, mm -hmm. obviously, to this point of, you know, I moved to the UK and, um, and I started speaking in schools a lot about the Paralympics and about disability and encourage, encouraging um, disabled kids to get into sport um, and all of this stuff. And Ultimately, it's rolled around to now where I talk even more so about disability activism. Um, I do a lot of consulting work now in um, companies and organizations and schools and stuff like that about what disability is, the issues that disabled people face. And I think most importantly um, is how non-disabled people can be better disability allies. I think, you know, we can talk about um, the issues that disabled people face, but if you're not actually talking to non-disabled people about how they can be a really good ally and support for disabled people and dismantle ableism, then there's no point talking to them about it. You have to give people those tools. So all of this life experience has kind of led to that point. <laughs> yeah. So I love, first of all, as a, as a parent, I love that your activism was born with your parents showing you the way. So awesome. So yeah. many of us parents, you know, we didn't always know what we were doing, but we just yeah. did our best. So it, it just, it feels great to know that we sparked something, you know, in our kids. So awesome. Um, of course, we always hope that we're doing the right thing, right? We don't always yeah. know. Yeah. And we're just out there doing our best every day. Yeah. Um, so that's awesome. So I know a lot of parents on this podcast are going to resonate with that. Siblings too. Obviously. I hope so. I hope so. Because I think, I think that's the thing as much as, um, you know, non-disabled parents and siblings might not understand completely the, the lived experience of what their children or, or siblings are going through. Um, but I think you, you guys are the next closest thing to understanding or, or people to understanding what that is actually like. And, and, you know, I think we have the opportunity to work together with, right. um, you know, to, to make the world better and more inclusive and more equitable we're all trying to come together as community. Mm. And as yeah. you said, you know, trying to work together, dis disabled and non-disabled. And um, so as you were speaking, I was thinking about this whole idea of body image and how different that is for men and women in, in general. Mm. And then, you know, how you stepped out even more so than just beyond disability, but disability for women. So talk to me about your magazine and some, some of the newer things that you're doing. So, um, so you've got Disability Review Magazine and your, your aim is really all about inclusion. So tell us about that. 
So um, Disability Review Magazine actually came about, that was a real surprise last year. So so for most of my life, I've been a or working career. I've been a speaker. I've just, I've just been, you know, going and doing keynotes and stuff. And, and in more recent years, consultation and running workshops and all that stuff. So I never imagined that I would become um, an editor of a magazine, let alone now recently, I've just taken on my third magazine as a freelance editor. Um, and they're all focused on disability because I believe so much in, in the importance of disability representation. We need it out there. We need community. We need to build this image of authentic disability lived experience. And I think, you know, certainly magazines are a way to do this. Um, uh, disability review magazine, um, Actually, that one came about um, out of the blue uh, from a publishing uh, house in down in London. I think they are, they're based. Um, and I've just got the call out of the blue asking me if I'd like to be the editor. And I never edited a thing before in my entire life. <laughs> so to suddenly go, you know, I, I had a lot of the imposter syndrome. I'm sure a lot of the your listeners can identify yes. with that, you know. Yes, yes. Absolutely experienced imposter syndrome. I ummed and art. I thought on it for three days. And then I thought, no, actually, this is a real unique opportunity that the university, uh, the university, the universe has given me um, to actually really step into what I feel is my purpose, which is to raise awareness about disability, disability representation, inclusion and diversity. So I said yes. And I did my first issue as editor of Disability Review Magazine, um, which came out in November last year and it is online. So all, you, all your listeners can go and check it check it out. Even if you're in the States, you can go yes. and check it out. Yeah, yes. Um, and my uh, executive editor, so my my boss in in the grand scheme of things, he he loved it. He said it was one of the strongest issues of a magazine that he'd ever seen. So I kind of felt like this was perhaps where I was meant to go with all of this to to really have the opportunity to the the opportunity. You can tell us the end of the day, can't you? For me, it's like I'm stumbling <laughs> over my words already. Um, <laughs> opportunity for me to tap into my network which um, I've been so purposeful in cultivating a community and network that is so intersectional in disability so I want to understand what it's like to be um, a black disabled woman or um, a a South Asian disabled woman or man um, or you know a, a gay disabled uh, individual or whoever that might be I want to really understand that because I don't have that lived experience so I've been so purposeful in cultivating my network and community to represent that but it does mean that with the now three magazines that um that I'm editing that I have such a rich resource um to pull on to support them and amplify their stories, um, whether it's in the arts, whether it's in sports, whether it's in writing, whether it's in acting, what, 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 wherever these people sit, what space they're sitting in, I can give them a platform to um, be heard um, and to tell their story and to be believed and seen, especially right. by non-disabled people. And it's going, it's so much more authentic than some of this inspiration porn that we see out in the regular community, right? I mean, let's talk yeah. about that for a minute because I know some of our listeners are not going to understand what I mean by inspiration mm -hmm. porn. Can we talk about that for a minute? 
Absolutely. So the term inspiration porn comes from an Australian, fellow Australian activist who sadly isn't with us anymore, Stella Young. She mm -hmm. did a TEDx talk, which I would highly recommend you listeners go and listen to. Um, and she brought up or created the term inspiration porn, which is essentially this idea that we create stories or images around disability that are created to inspire non-disabled people to basically make you think that, oh, look, my life isn't as bad as I think it is because look at that person. Or on the flip side, look, why can't I do this? Because that disabled person's doing, you know, doing a flip on a skateboard. So why aren't I getting up in the morning and just getting on with my life? It's this idea of, of using the disabled narrative to inspire you to be a better person or live a better life or whatever that may be. But the point is, it, it is that it reduces disabled individuals down to just purely this idea of inspiration, whereas disabled people are just like non-disabled people. We have bad days. I have days where I get up and I'm so cranky and I snap at my housemate and, and I'm probably the worst person to be around for that day and it's not because I'm angry or upset because of my disability I'm just like everyone else and I might be having a really bad day yeah. or I might have a really good day where I'm just feeling really joyful and, and happy like I am today like this afternoon on the podcast and um, and again, I'm not being happy and joyful because I've overcome something in my disability. I'm just having a really good day. And whether I had a disability or not, it wouldn't matter. That doesn't come into it. So I think inspiration porn is that reduction of the disabled experience to being um, an individual there for the non-disabled person instead of being given the space to just be who we are as disabled people, whether it's a good day or a bad day. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's that that it's that idea that, you know, you clap for somebody and say, oh, that's so amazing. You know, how wonderful. It's kind of like that pat on the and head of somebody. Exactly. Whereas I could just be sitting there drinking my cup of tea and I get a pat on the head for drinking a cup of tea. And it's like, I, well, I don't go up to non-disabled people and pat them on the head. Right. And go, well, so that's amazing. You're drinking a cup of tea. Right. <laughs> aren't you such a wonderful kiddo? Yeah. You know, I do that to my Elizabeth all the time. Oh, she's so amazing. And all she'd be doing would be sitting there and drooling, you know, like, yeah, oh, it's like, yeah. um, you know, or she's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. You know, so yeah, yeah. we really want to move beyond that and have people seen as people and, you know, People with disabilities have all kinds of personalities. Some of them are great people. Some of them are jerks, right? We all have Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I've met some disabled people who I just think, yeah, we're not going to be friends because, right. you know, you're not a nice person or you're a bit annoying or, you know, it's just, I think, I think that's the thing that people have to remember is that disabled people, we're just like everyone else. We just mm -hmm. we might look a bit different or think a bit different or behave a bit different, but don't we all, we all look a bit different to each other and we all think a bit different and we all behave a bit differently to each other. So, And then the same thing is reducing somebody with a disability down to a couple of you know, characteristics. So if you've met somebody with autism, you've met one person with autism, you don't know what that means. 
or if you've met somebody no. with an intellectual disability, you think that you know what that is. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't extend, you know, everybody is an individual. No, and, and I've got a funny story about that, actually. A few years ago, I, I was back in Australia with family for Christmas, and my my dad lives just north of Sydney, and my cousin lives in Canberra, which is about a five-hour train journey away from where my dad lives. So I wanted to go down and visit her for a few days. So I was like, right, you know, I'm going to get on the train, and I'm going to go down to Canberra and visit her. So I got the train from my dad's place to Sydney, the main train station in Sydney. And while I was standing in the main train station in Sydney, waiting for the train to Canberra, just minding my own business, you know, just like pretty much everyone else does these days. I'm standing there with my phone out, like scrolling social media, like going, oh, I've got 20 minutes to wait for this train. I'll just look through Instagram. And I noticed this woman and um, what in the end I then found out was her, her partner um, standing there and they kept on looking at me and her partner wandered off and this woman then came up to me and she said, hi. And I was like, hi, <laughs> I don't know who you are. Like, why, why are you talking to me? Um, and she then, the first thing she said was, my sister has cerebral palsy. Um, so, you know, I know it must be really tough to have a disability. And I was just like, but I don't have cerebral palsy. I have no idea what it's like to have cerebral palsy. So how can, how can you equate your sister's experience? To, how can you know my life? And it was the most bizarre conversation that I'd had in a really long time. And um, but this is the thing, I think the other thing with disabled people is that we so often get approached by absolute strangers who feel like that they can make that connection. Right. Between, you know, I know someone with a disability, so I obviously completely understand what your life is like. And um, or they feel like it's their right to come and ask questions about yeah. um, my body or, you know, my prosthetic limb or something like that. And and it's kind of like, I, for me, it's that thing of just because I look different to you doesn't mean that you have permission to just come up and make that comparison or ask that question. You know, I'm just standing yeah. there minding my own business. I don't, I'm not, so I'm not inviting that. So it's gone in the complete opposite direction, right? Because it used to be that people would stare and run in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And now it's gone and the pendulum has swung completely opposite, right? So what we need to do is be in the middle where people are just normal. Well, you know, I mean, you can't not look at people, right? I look at non-disabled people all the time. I look at disabled people all the time because we can't, we can't go around in life with blinkers on and just going, right, I'm just going to ignore every single person I see and not look at them. And that, so it's fine to, you know, I kind of said exactly being in the middle, it's fine to, to, you know, look at and acknowledge a disabled person, but not stare. And then at the same time with conversation, if you happen to start a chat with someone and through the course of that chat, your disability comes up and the person says that it's okay to ask questions about uh, the disability, then of course, go for it, do it. But you're right, we've swung so far the other way that it's just, yeah, it's a bit, a bit mad yeah. out there. Where people are invading personal space yeah. or, you know, really yeah. becoming so, you know, and you know that they're doing it, be, you know, they are trying to come from a good place a lot yeah. of times, yeah. but it's weird 
it's weird. It is. Um, it is. You know, where people would come up, for example, and touch my daughter, and I would be like, please don't touch her. <laughs> you know, yeah. I want you to touch her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's that kind of thing. Like, you'd, you'd want to say to them, would you like it if you were just sitting there and someone came up behind you and like touched your hair or touched? Yes like your hand or grabbed your hand or something like that. It's like, yeah, if a stranger yeah. did that to you, you'd probably jump up and yell at them to, to mm-hmm. go away. Like, so yeah. It's very, very, very strange. It is. It so is. Um, getting back to the magazine and to talking about ableism, um, mm-hmm. which is something that you're working really hard on as well as, you know, really, include talking about inclusion and um you know some of the themes that you are that you're working on um and then you mentioned two other magazines as well um Mm. let's let's bring this back to you know this conversation so um what is ableism Okay, for me, able the, the the easiest way I can explain ableism to people is first off, put it in the same uh, categorization as racism uh, or homophobia or sexism or ageism. Essentially, it's any um, discrimination against uh, an individual for a particular characteristic that they might have. So um, in terms of ableism, it's discrimination against uh, someone who has an impairment or condition. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it can be anything in terms of like a social barrier. So, um, you know, maybe inaccessibility into a, into a building, maybe uh, a, a building that only has stairs to access it or doesn't have any braille on signs or something like that. You could consider that as, as being ableism because a, a person with a certain impairment or condition is being excluded from a space based on an impairment or condition that they have. Or it could come down to an attitude or belief or stereotype. Um, so, you know, you if, if someone's come in uh, for a job interview and they have an impairment or condition of some kind, and um, I mean, case in point, this has happened to me a few times, and then the person interviewing might make that kind of immediate decision that oh this individual can't do this job because mm-hmm. I see their impairment or condition and I believe that they can't do this job but they haven't even asked the individual can you do this job um, and do you need support to do this job so what reasonable adjustments can we make to make this happen mm-hmm. so it's those snap snap decisions ideas stereotypes um, against someone with a disability and thus preventing them from perhaps accessing employment or education or just getting on with their life in general so for example the lady at the train station she was basically being ableist to me by just thinking that she had the right to come up and and ask me that question so how do you think we're doing as a society as a whole um I I think I mean I think there's been improvements I think COVID I think the pandemic has made some things improve and some things slide backwards so you know in terms of technology and access and flexible employment I think suddenly organizations and businesses are, are like 
wow, actually people will work from home and we can have team meetings on um, online and it's all good. So it's kind of shown that, yes, if you have, if you employ a disabled person who maybe needs more flexible working, it's possible for you to do that. You know, it, it can happen. But then on the flip side, we've seen a lot. I'm not sure what the stats are like in the States, but certainly here in the UK, I think I read the other day that six in 10 people who have died from COVID had a disability of some kind. So there's certainly kind of other inequalities that are starting to pop up, especially I think in terms of medicine um, and care for disabled people. So uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, we actually, there was a quite a scandal over here in the UK that it it became known that uh, people with learning disabilities were basically having do not resuscitate notes put on uh, or a uh, thing put on their notes so that if they went in with COVID and were put on ventilators, they were basically being told that they wouldn't be resuscitated if, yeah. if they needed that. Um, and it became apparent that it was because of their learning disability. So, you know, there's all these kind of things. I think, I think there's been some advances but we have slid back, I think, certainly mm-hmm. in some degrees. I think we still have a really long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In the U.S., mm-hmm. our employment statistics for people with disabilities mm-hmm. are just, they're, they're just mm-hmm. egregious, you know. Um, yeah. we, we really haven't made as much progress as we would like mm-hmm. for um medical equity. And I think the pandemic has really brought that to light. Mm. And um, we've lost, I think it's probably, you know, six or seven out of 10 people Mm. to the pandemic have been a person with disabilities as well, um, or um, extra, um, like critical health conditions, Mm. which we consider disabling conditions. So Mm. yeah, it's been it's been very challenging here um, with people mm-hmm. living in con- congregate communities and um, that sort of thing. So, um, have, you know, it's tough, isn't it? And and I think it, it goes to show how much people still don't understand about disability. I mean, we've had so many people here, even I think, saying, uh, you know, non-disabled people saying. We need to open things up. Why can't all the people who are vulnerable just stay at home and we can just get on with our lives? And I've, I've read so much pain from the disabled community um, of people saying, you know, they're young people and they want to go out and live their lives as well, but they can't because of chronic health conditions or um uh, you know, kind of uh, immune disorders or something like that, which means that they they can't if they open up you know, the wider world. And, you know, rightly so, they say, how is that fair? How is that fair that I have to put my life on hold um, just so people who maybe aren't uh, as ri- aren't at as risk with the um, right. COVID um, as them? And, and I totally get that because even though me, myself, I'm not classed as... Um, but in other ways, I've been excluded from society in certain ways and um, perhaps not had things happen the way that I want to or as quickly as I want to because of my impairment. 
And it's frustrating because you just want to live your life like everyone else. You just want to have that chance to exist and be and be happy and joyful, the same as everyone else. And you're not being given that that chance. These are difficult questions to weigh. You know, if you if you do want to be considered the same as everyone else with the same opportunities as everyone else, you need to balance that along with, you know, the protections that you're asking for. So you, if you want extra protection, then you are asking to be considered different. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it is a little, it, it, these it, are is, tough, it is a bit tough. tough I, it is a tough question. And I think, I think what it comes down to and what it reveals, it's like what we were talking about a few minutes ago is, is I think what the pandemic has done is it's revealed actually the inequalities perhaps that we hadn't seen before or hadn't been as aware of before. And I think it's really shown that society in the world, especially, you know, I'll say um, the Western countries that we live in, um, are not set up well at all to, to cater for or support disabled individuals in the very um, breadth and depth of what disability actually means. Because I think what shocks a lot of people, I think a lot of people, when they think of disability, they, they think of wheelchair users, they think of the wheelchair. And I think, you know, because it's come about because the symbol for disability so often is the wheelchair symbol. Yeah. And I think what shocks a lot of people is that wheelchair users only make up approximately 8% of the disability community globally. Right. That there is this real breadth and depth of what disability actually is. And I think we need to really have people understand this breadth and depth and also the fact that anyone at any point can acquire a disability. That's right. That's right. Yep, that those born with a disability are actually such a small percentage of the yes. entire disability community. Thank and you. That, yes, yes. Yep. And if you continue to ignore ableism and you continue to ignore accessibility, that ultimately, um, I don't know, I'm going to use a really bad cliche here, but ultimately you're shooting yourself in the foot because if you acquire a disability either tomorrow or next year or in 10 years' time, you will be sitting there going, man, I wish that I had access to this space. That's right. That's right. It's love that you may join someday, you know, and you don't know it yet because... There are neurodiversities, there are healthcare diversities, there are, um, there's, you know, mental health issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just have no idea. You no. may be somebody who ends up with, you know, uh, multiple sclerosis. You may be somebody who ends up with an early dementia. You know, you could join our club someday. And exactly. Exactly. And I, so I always say to people, if you if you don't want to think about it as much as I wish that you would, because it should never be dependent on whether you join the club or not. You should always want to be accessible and inclusive for disabled people in general, full stop. But if you can't think from that perspective, if you can't put yourself in that spot or do it for that reason, then do it purely on the fact that you could someday join this club and that it will impact you. And the sheer numbers, I don't know what they look like in the UK or around the world, but in the US, it's one in five. Yeah. 
it's similar here in the UK. Yeah. So um, what's going on with your vaccines, just out of curiosity? Where are yeah. you? Um, so we actually started vaccinating in early January, I think it was. Um, we had our first uh, per, per, lot of people vaccinated. Um, obviously, they're focused on frontline workers as well as um, the uh, kind of over 70s no over 80s they started with and then they're slowly going down by decade um, as to who's up next um, I think uh, the government here have been really focused on getting everyone vaccinated as quickly as possible um, so at this point the latest I heard they're looking at having all adults vaccinated by July which wow. is really great it's a lot quicker than I thought it would be. I, I, I'll be honest with you, Annette. I thought I wouldn't get my vaccine till autumn, if not winter. Wow. Um, but at this rate, I will be showing up at my GP's office with my sleeve up going, give me the vaccine, hopefully by the end of summer, if not earlier. So we'll see. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. I don't know that we're going to be that fortunate here. We're having a lot of difficulty. Um, mm -hmm. It's state by state here. Yeah. We're so fractured in our delivery yeah. systems. And, you know, we have, I think as well, it hasn't helped um, having all that uh, instability with the, you know, you guys had the election and the, the kind of inauguration of the new president and so many different things happening all at once that it's just been so tough for you guys. You know it you know it. So tell me about your two other magazines. You've got Conscious Life too? Uh, Conscious Being. Conscious Being, um, okay. Yep. And um, a new one that I've just been brought on for, it's literally in the absolute sheer infancy of the magazine. And it, it will be called Not Your Monolith. And, um, and that will probably be launched in May. Well, that's exciting. Tell me about that. What what's the theme? Okay, so um, both Conscious Being and Not Your Monolith are a disability focused um, magazine still, um, uh, kind of looking at uh, creating content through the disability lens. Conscious Being uh, focuses primarily on disabled women, so it's about giving a platform to disabled women writers um, and content creators. So it's very niche, that particular one. Um, and I founded that one myself. Not Your Monolith has been founded by Emma Gardner and she brought me on board as the editor for uh, the managing editor for it. Um, and it's going to be a magazine that is a little bit more mainstream. So it's going to be articles and content aimed at not just disabled people, but, not, but non disabled people as well. But the aim with it is that all the writers, all the staff will have a disability of some kind. So even if we're not um, in Not Your Monolith talking specifically about disability, you will be reading this magazine knowing that the article has been written by a disabled person. Okay, so the topics are not going to be disabled focused, but the, mm. the um, staff and the creators are yeah. Disabled. will be disabled exactly so there might be some you know uh references to to disability in some way but that's not going to be the main focus so um 
I guess Emma Emma describes it as being a bit like Teen Vogue or something like that. So there'll be a few like hard hitting uh, kind of well researched articles, but alongside kind of you know book reviews and film reviews and um, you know a little bit of um, maybe fashion or or music or pop culture. So um, yeah, it's a bit more kind of that uh, mainstream aim or look at. So we talked a little bit about. Um, Sia's new movie before we jumped on the recording here and we were getting hot and heavy and I said no 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 save that <laughs> hitting the record button so you know we we have this you know theme of nothing for us without us right yeah, yeah and yeah. you know I'm just fascinated to know your take on um what what are your thoughts about that I mean we know that there's been a lot of controversy controversy see I think <laughs> it's 10 o'clock my... in the morning here <laughs> I'm passing um... on my tipping over words <laughs> <laughs> sorry Annette <laughs> well at least you're not alone um so so in the autism community um, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of controversy about this movie and we, you know, look, we get it that it's important to portray people with disabilities by people who have disabilities. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but then again, there are people who feel that it's acting and why can't somebody act, you know, why can't we have somebody be in a role and portray a role who is not that why can't we have somebody of color portray a role that was traditionally a white person why can't we go in the reverse but then again you can't really do that right so Mm -hmm. some things are okay some things are not okay so what are your thoughts about this I think I think the whole thing with Sia's movie has has just become a big mess. I mean, in general, we might as well say 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 what it is. It's just become a really big mess. So, you know, um, and I mean, this is coming from me, who I was a huge Sia fan. I mean, I've seen her in concert twice. I, you know, the fellow Aussie. I thought she was, you know, the bee's knees, and I still appreciate her music. You know, I'm not I'm not really into this whole idea of cancel culture. I don't believe we should just completely yes. cancel people I think you know we all make mistakes and I think Sia has just made she's made a mistake and she hasn't dealt with it well I think that's also contributed to to um, the uproar about it in in that she really didn't deal with the criticism when it came through well so much so that she's now deleted her Twitter account and she's kind of wiped all that <laughs> that kind of history um, for me I think what actually the movie symbolizes is actually how um, much inequality there is in Hollywood and movie making in general. Essentially, we don't have enough disabled people behind the scenes, in production, in writing, in filming, in costume design, in music, in everything. We don't have enough representation um, kind of behind the scenes in in right. such a way that um, you know you 
um, and actually coming up to, to acting as well, you know, I certainly know quite a few autistic actors who did say, I could have done this job for you. I have dancing as a skill. I have, um, you know, I'm, I'm an actor. I, that's my job. This is what I, I do. And, and I would have loved to have gone for this role. And I think what this movie showed was that, um, essentially I think Sia had in mind that she wanted Maddie Ziegler for this particular role for her movie as as so many people are aware Maddie is Sia's muse for want of a better word um, she's used her a lot in in a lot of her video clips for her music and stuff like that and I think ultimately Sia's made the mistake in that she wanted Maddie for this role, not thinking that she could have created or written a movie for Maddie. Certainly, I'm not begrudging her that. If Maddie is her muse, go and do that. She didn't have to make the character autistic. Right. That that wasn't specific. And if and if you're wanting to write an autistic story, perhaps tap into the autistic community, work with an autistic writer hire an autistic actor who can more authentically portray that. I've, I don't know if you've seen the trailer or mm-hmm. some of, some of the, the oh, stuff. Yes. <laughs> and it's really, really awkward to watch. And it's yeah. really cringeworthy because it does make you think of, you know, going back to, you know, the movie Rain Man and stuff like mm-hmm. that. It's a very cliched look um, and representation of what autism is. Whereas we know, we know that autism Um, the experience of autism is so wide and varied and that, you know, talking to uh, my autistic friends that they say, okay, yeah, we might um, have exaggerated facial expressions or we might have tics that we have and um, or stims that we use to, to calm ourselves. But the the point is there, there's a reason for it, why it's there. Whereas, you know, I kind of watch Maddie in the trailer and it's, it's just a very over-exaggerated and really uncomfortable to, to, to watch like these expressions that she has on her face. And it's just, it doesn't sit right with me. And I can completely understand why the autism community are really upset and angry about it. Yeah. Um, and, and like I said, I don't think Sia dealt with the whole criticism very well. Whereas on the flip side, uh, kind of partway through last year, we had the movie The Witches come out where um, Anne Hathaway um, and the producers got a lot of criticism about um, how she had limb difference, essentially upper limb difference in her hands. So um, her hands, so if I describe my hand, my left hand, um, and I can show Annette, I can't show you the listeners though, but I can show Annette. Um, you can see my my left hand where I'm missing a finger and my thumb and one of my fingers is joined together. Now, this this isn't exactly how Anne Hathaway's hand was made up to look, but it's similar. Like her hand was made up to look kind of similar to what mine looks like. And there was a lot of outcry and a lot of hurt um, in the limb difference community. There's a little girl that I know with upper limb difference who was absolutely distraught when the movie came out and she was so worried that she'd be called an evil witch and that by by her peers at school. And But in the end, you know what? Warner Brothers came out and apologised. Anne mm-hmm. Hathaway came out with a very, very, if you want to learn how to apologise for something, go read <laughs> Anne Hathaway's apology. And I say this to Sia as well, go read Anne Hathaway's apology. Right. Because Anne Hathaway nailed her apology. She did it perfectly. She apologized for upsetting um, 
people in the limb different community. She admitted that they'd got it wrong, that they hadn't done the research, that there wasn't the awareness there, um, and that she was going to go out and educate herself more about limb difference and actually teach her children about limb difference. And I thought, yes, Anne, you've absolutely nailed that um mm -hmm. that apology so there's ways ways to do it and ways not to and the wonderful thing is now that warner brothers have bought on board um a lucky finn foundation i think they're called in the states um to act as advisors and consultants around limb difference and disability so all of all you know i applaud warner brothers as well yay for, for acknowledging their faults and their issues around uh, inequality and disability in the filmmaking mm -hmm. industry. So, you know, you, you've kind of got Sia, who's not dealt with it very well, um, compared to, to Anne Hathaway and, and Warner Brothers. So I think, you know, there's there's ways we can grow and learn from this. And I really hope that, that Sia does and I really hope that the movie industry does as well. And if you want to know how to do it right, The Peanut Butter Falcon was a great movie that brought yeah, yeah. in an actor who was actually yeah, yeah. disabled and yeah, you know, yeah. had a disability issue throughout um, that raised awareness yeah. for something that happens all the time in the U.S. Exactly. Exactly. And, and even, and even, you know, there's TV shows um, uh, out there that um, there's one on Netflix called The Healing Powers of Dude, which is just absolutely brilliant. And they have multiple characters, children with different impairments and conditions. And the impairments and conditions aren't sensationalized or anything like that It is purely just one part of these children's identity. Mm -hmm. Um and how they experience life as who they are. Um, and, and, you know, kind of also uh, Lama Lama came out, even, even though I know it's an animated series, <laughs> but, but they um, have a character called Audrey who's limb different and looks just like me. And, you know, my five-year-old self would have absolutely loved to have seen myself represented on the screen like that. So, you know, there are certainly really good examples of, of, um, the film and TV industry who are doing it really, really well. So that is bringing us to the end of our time. So I, I love this interview um, and I didn't have enough time to ask all the questions I wanted to. Yeah. I, I really want to leave our audience with a couple of thoughts about how, whether you are a person with a disability or whether you are somebody in the community who is adjacent and wants to help or wants to be you know, part of this because we're a family member, a professional, a caregiver, um, what, are, what are the thoughts that you wanna leave us with? A couple of points about how we can continue to be an activist, continue to, keep moving the cause forward. What can we be yeah. doing? You know, this is a, this is an important year. We mm. really, we really are making change. Mm. Things are getting better, right? This is a, this yeah. is a big year for us. So what can we do? I, I honestly think, you know, I think one of the biggest learnings I've had myself personally the past few years is about allyship myself. Um, so whether whether you're non-disabled or disabled, a uh, 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 
spouse, a sibling, a parent, um, a friend, um, even a stranger, it, it, you know, or if you work in the care industry in some way. I think it's about really understanding what it means to be an ally and then actually living your life by those values and standards. So, you know, for me, I used to think that, oh, well, I, I'm limb different. I know what it's like to be disabled 100%. You know, I can get up and talk about it. <laughs> I can be the one person um, who stands there and tells everyone about disability. But I know that I can't. You know, the past few years have been a really strong learning curve that actually as an ally for disabled people, Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to be open-minded. You have to be willing to listen. And when I say listen, I mean really, really focus on what that disabled individual is saying, not laying your own perceptions over or understanding the standings over it, but really listening to what they're saying and believe what they are saying. Um so what I mean by this is that, you know, for me, certainly this is this, and this is just an example from me. I've had so many times where I've had people comment stuff to me and it's made me feel really icky or yucky, even though it's, I know it's been meant to, to be a kind intention behind that comment. And then when I've told a family member or a friend that this person said this to me and it didn't feel right, it just, it made me feel shame or it made me feel upset or angry or hurt. Mm-hmm. And they've said to me, oh, but they've, they're just being kind. Don't, you know, don't feel that way. And it's completely invalidated my feelings and my emotions about my experience, my lived experience as a disabled individual. And so when I talk about really hearing someone and being open-minded and believing them. It's about believing that person's authentic lived experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me as an ally, I think that's the most important thing that we can do. Um, It's not about um, necessarily stepping in front of the community and speaking for them, but it's standing with the community and speaking with them. I think that is the most important thing that we can do. Got it. So good. I hope so. <laughs> Standing with the community and speaking with them. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Sometimes though, we don't always have that opportunity. And, you know, I get asked a lot to speak for the community. And as somebody who is a community activist and somebody who has that role and responsibility. Um, I take that very seriously. And I do often feel a little uncomfortable. Um, So I take that, I take that role very seriously. And I know that that means that sometimes I am speaking for people, but I try to do that with the message of this has been our experience. Mm. This is what I know. This is what I have been part of and I'm not trying to speak to every person out there and so Mm. I do try to speak to you know as a lawyer I know these things as a caregiver to my family I know these things and then not try to say that every person's experience is x 
and it but isn't that, easy. That is allyship in there, honestly. That is, and I think, and I think as well, it's because I know I've been in that situation. You know, certainly as a speaker, as a consultant, I go into organisations and businesses to talk about disability, and of course, I'm going to mention. Um, learning disability, autism, chronic illness, um, because it's all part of the disability experience. But I can't say to people that, well, this is what it's like to, right. to, to have that impairment or condition. But what I can do is, um, and this is what I've started doing a lot more recently, is I put it out to, to my network on social media. Yes. I'll, I'm reading a lot more books by disabled authors and I'll take passages from that and I'll amplify those people's voices. I'll take tweets, I'll take Instagram posts, I'll take that and, um, and I'll take that into the talk with me. I'll take that into the consultation and workshop work with me and um, I'll have them on the screen. I'll say them out loud. I'll say, this is from this person and you can go and follow them and you can talk to them yourself so that you can learn. And, and I think that's what I mean when I say you, you stand with and you talk with the community. It's, it's amplifying the people's voices around you. And even if it's just you in that spotlight in there, even if it's just you up, on the, up there on that stage or talking with that individual, it's, it's about how you can say, this is my experience, but also if you want to check out this person or that person, there's their experience as well. And you can broaden that learning and that growth for everyone. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. Thank Sorry that it's so much you know, gone me. into your afternoon. I appreciate it's it so fine. much. Though. It's fine. <laughs> Stop bragging about how warm it is there, though. Okay. All of, all of 10 degrees today, but we do have sunshine, which I might might um, dash out for, to it for, for a little bit of vitamin D. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, enjoy it because we're not getting any here. None oh, at all. <laughs> I, hope you get it soon. I hope you get it soon, Annette, honestly. Thank you so much for all you do for the disability community. We are just loving everything that you're putting out. So have a great year. And it was so great to meet Thank you. You, you Thank too. You. Thank you, Annette. Thank you so much. Bye now. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.